I would just say that these prices don't happen without years and years of hard work by the great galleries out there who are supporting these artists and putting together really thoughtful thoughtful exhibition programs and thoughtful, you know, placing the works really well. I would say for somebody like Pindell, you know, Garth Greenan has been building that for years before there were any auction results. And the kind of, I would say the kind of value creation he was able to produce in that market in terms of what he was, what he's been selling great Pindell works to great collectors has long outpaced what the auction market has reflected. And what we've been able to do recently is really thanks to all of the hard work that's been put into that market over the past several years by people like him. Um, And now I like to think that the public price achieved is just one step in helping to continue to grow that market and interest from people around the world in her work. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales, or visit us at liveart.io. David Galperin is head of contemporary art for the Americas at Sotheby's. He helped develop Sotheby's new structure for the evening sales, particularly the now sale. One of Galperin's focuses at Sotheby's is establishing markets for new and overlooked artists. We spoke shortly after the May auctions in New York ended to get his impressions of the week and what's happening in the market. Hello, David Galperin. How are you? I'm Marion Manneker. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. Uh, a little tired after such a compressed uh, season of auction sales, one on top of the other, uh, and still somewhat trying to sort out what I think happened or is happening but I thought it'd be great to get your impression since you are on the front lines, not only of the sales, but also then taking what you've learned from these sales and starting to make your approaches for uh, the next season. How do you think it all went and what do you think it all means? Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I thought it was a fascinating season. I mean, I have to say every, every time we do this, Um, we have new insights and learnings and the market continues to be a fascinating place that is intelligent, efficient, um, uh, challenging at times. Um, But, you know, I think it's the way it's incredibly demanding is a really good thing. And the insights that we've been getting over the past couple of months have been um, for me, incredibly exciting. It doesn't feel like we've got any, well, I would say any, but but many new breakout names. Uh, it, it almost feels like there are continuing markets in a, a number of artists. There are some, you know, uh, uh, very well-known, well-traded artists that uh, maybe it feels like, you know, 
there's been just a lot of activity and it's hard to get people uh, excited about them or maybe just the you know expectations of the sellers are are a bit ahead of where uh, buyers are but but I thought the one of the you know signal new names was the first lot in your uh, uh, the now sale uh, and I always butcher the pronunciation of it's Justin Cagliat. Exactly. Yeah. Justin Cagliat. Yeah. He's an artist that I've been following for a long time and I think is one of the most exciting young painters today. It was not easy to find a work, frankly, for the auction. We've been looking for one for, I would say, the past year or so. And, you know, he's an artist who I think represents the very best of what's going on right now. He's encapsulating and absorbing such a vast array of historical influences, you know, from Vienna secession artists through to painters like Kai Althoff, um, and really rewriting it through the the language of the present day. You know, he's immensely talented and makes very little work. And so those are the two kind of magic elements that are able to create an amount of demand that we saw this past season. And I remember going to his first show at 15 Orient back in their first space in Bushwick um, and seeing the paintings on the wall and really feeling like I was struck by a real talent. Um, And since then, you know, he's just been on a rocket ship going from um, a show at Stuart Shave Modern Art in London to Green of Tolly in New York. So it was really exciting for us to bring his work to market for the first time and see competitive bidding you know, from from all points of the of the globe. I saw some place, and I wish I could remember to give you the citation. But someone kind of questioning, you know, here's an artist who uh, you just described as being a rocket ship, but he also doesn't have or hasn't had much in the way of um, institutional uh, support. So there's a certain element where this is, it's not a shot in the dark, but it is still quite, you know, based on the assumption that there will be a great deal more from him. You know, we had one previous work of his sell at auction last year, a very different sort of work. Do you do you sort of worry about what happens next with him? What what you know he starts to produce after this that that he'll be able to sort of keep on the same trajectory? I'm not worried because I think it's all about the quality of the of the artwork and the artist. I think he's the work speaks to what a rigorous and thoughtful artist that he is. And, you know, to that very end, he makes very little work. I mean, he his paintings are intensely labored over. They're incredibly layered. Um, many of them are quite significant in scale and they take a long time to produce. And that, you know, will result in a market that I think is enduring. To your to your first point, you know, we we've entered a market in the past several years that is far more accelerated than it once was. It used to be that um, there was a process and a timeline before an artist would would reach the kind of demand that it has now. Um, and that would include, more institutional shows, um, more scholarship. Um, there were a lot of more in-between steps, I would call it, from, from the first gallery show to the auction block. That's all changed because I think not only is the 
kind of interest and demand greater and deeper for artwork around the globe, um, unmatched by a degree of supply of great work. Um, but also there's so much more information at people's fingertips, right? You used to have to wait until you heard about an artist from your friend or um, a fellow collector seeing the work in a museum show to a curator talking about it, to reading an article or a review in the Times. That's all changed because everybody's looking at images all day long on their phone and everybody is talking and interested. So, you know, the old adage of having to, I would say, cross a few rungs before the work merited a certain value is, I think, old fashioned. You know, it's 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 a different world today and people find out about things and get excited about great work much faster than they used to. So, but it's also hard for institutions to keep up, right? It's they plan shows often at least a year out, but more likely two to three years out. And so you might see, you know, you will see likely strong institutional representation of, of an artist like Justin that we're discussing in the future. But in the short term, it takes more nimble institutions or really strong um intelligent, sophisticated gallery programs like Green Neftali or Modern Art to present museum-like, museum-quality shows of an artist's work that in many ways will have a similar effect. And do you think the the warehouse being in Dallas, that you know, there's an increasing weight towards uh, uh, shows that take place in other cities, you know, not New York or London or Paris? Definitely. Um, I mean, look at all of the interesting programming happening, not only across America, but around the world. Like there's private foundations and collections coming forward that are putting together really interesting exhibition programs. There's Kunsthalas around the world, you know, from um, um, from Texas to Florence that are doing really interesting presentations and I think are standing up in many ways and, and are, are much more much faster than some of the large scale museums that we're used to seeing. If I can switch gears for a second, the the lot that came after the Kagriat was um, Ajare Fadujutimi uh, painting that also did uh, quite well, and, and then a, a, almost the same price was achieved at another auction house for a darker painting by her, and and I know that you know she's did very well with the uh, art fair show at Gagosian last October. She'd had the ICA show in Miami the December uh, before. Uh, it almost seemed more kind of surprising that, you know, these cycles are happening so much faster that there still is a, a, a quite substantial demand uh, for her work continuing. Yeah, I mean, it's as the market gets wider, it doesn't necessarily mean that the values will then double or triple and continue to exponentially multiply. I think a persistent and consistent regularity of her great paintings achieving in that kind of $800,000 to $1.5 million territory shows an endurance in the market and a stability that is quite rewarding to see, quite frankly. Um, I think it's in many ways it can be unhealthy to have artists continue to multiply 
in value, especially when they shoot up so quickly. And this kind of, I would say, continuing resilience in the market and continuing depth in the sort of, I would call it million dollar bracket for her work. Um, it just speaks to a great depth in the market. No, and I I think, you know, it's, it's easy to get cavalier about 900000 or a million dollars and then realize it's a quite a lot of money for a, a, a young painter who, you know, has career, as we were just saying about Kaguya, the, this is a, still a lot of money to invest in someone who's still very much at the beginning uh, of their career. I, I thought it was interesting and, uh, you know, just forgive me, I'm going to quote a few na- names, this trend of being of strong interest in women painters who are abstract painters, both with contemporary painters like um, Michaela Yerudan, where there were strong prices, and historical ones where, you know, in your sales, there were um, uh, an Elaine de Kooning in the day sale and an Alice Baber that sold uh, quite well, a Pat Pasloff, uh, both in your sale and uh, elsewhere around town. Uh, Lynn Drexler continues to sell well, sort of all, all over the place. You did very well with a Howardina Pindell, um, you know, which is sort of the third million dollar, speaking of the million dollar mark, uh, painting of hers to be auctioned in sort of successive uh, seasons. Is this connected in some way, or is it just these are a bunch of really interesting artists that haven't really, uh, uh, you know, had their day in the sun and are are, are sort of finally getting uh, their close up? Yes, and yes. <laughs> um, look, I think the pendulum continues to swing as always, back and forth in a way between figuration and abstraction, and we are in a moment where a lot of collectors and the market are looking forwards and backwards to great examples of abstract painting after being in a moment over the past several years that was greatly defined by a rise in figuration and representation. Now, I don't think that it's one size fits all approach. I think that it's all about quality um, and finding, you know, the great artists both of today, yes, both of today and yesterday, um, who the market thinks should be valued more. Um, and and many of the examples that you've raised from Pindell to somebody more contemporary like Jade, um, who paint who make abstract works, I think represent the market's hunger for for sussing out and finding those great works of art. Um, however, you know, there were also great great prices for figurative painters. Look at Nicole Eisenman, right? That that painting, which was for me, one of her standout works ever, um, the price and the depth of bidding that we had on that and it's selling for $2.4 million against a low estimate of $800,000 when the previous record was, I think around a million or $1.1 million speaks to, you know, even in the, even in light of a market that starts to trend towards abstraction is generally just looking for the very best. And whether it's figurative or abstract, it doesn't really matter as long as it's quantifiably and very objectively one of the artist's best works. Well, that's also an interesting case because it, it is a, a a distinctive historical work. So it doesn't have to be priced against the work that her primary dealer is uh, selling. And you don't necessarily have to worry that the that price gets sort of way out of line with her uh, primary prices at all. 
This is true. Yeah. But do you guys, I mean, when you, when you think through what you're bringing to auction and how you price it, I'm assuming that's a big part of, uh, of how you um, uh, present the work, work since, you know, it, it, in some of these cases, it's people, if you can't get access to the work in the primary uh, uh, auction is your uh, opportunity. But for others, it's, it's figuring out how this historical work stacks up with the work that the uh, artist is making now. Completely. I mean, in the when we're talking about an artist like Nicole Eisenman, um, you, you can take a painting like Night Studio and put an unprecedented estimate on it that's in a way in line with her primary pricing for new works, but should be making much more given its importance when you look at her vaster body of work and also the kind of institutional um, institutional attention she's receiving right now in various exhibitions and retrospective formats. Um, I think what's even more interesting is when you you look at artists like Pat Pasloff or Howard Dina Pindell, who, you know, in a way, while the retail market has been able to secure strong prices, given a recontextualization of their work, I would say that the markets rely a lot on auction to determine where that um, where that value or where that price can land. Um, and it's exciting to see results for things like the Pat Pasloff, which is making, you know, close to $500,000 or Pindell, who even in light of um, many shows and, and, and great moments in her career for, for the past couple of years, after a long time of working, um, had yet to really break that market auction. I do think it's important to to recognize the role that sales play, especially for historical artists. You know, when it's a contemporary artist with a uh, you know global gallery behind them, and they have a major show every couple of years, and the collectors can see the the amount of demand, and they can hear it through their you know either on social media or, or through their personal networks uh, uh, of it, it makes it easier for someone to you know. Uh, understand that the, the price they're paying it takes all that into account with the historical artists, especially uh, some of the ones that have gotten less uh, attention. People need to see some other people bidding. They need to see a public price to know that these are actually, if you don't pay it privately, someone else will. And this is a good way of getting uh, that across to um, to the buyers. I would just say that these prices don't happen without years and years of hard work by the great galleries out there who are supporting these artists and putting together really thoughtful thoughtful exhibition programs and thoughtful, you know, placing the works really well. I would say for somebody like Pindell, you know, Garth Greenan has been building that for years before there were any auction results. And the kind of, I would say the kind of value creation he was able to produce in that market in terms of what he was what he's been selling great Pendel works to great collectors has long outpaced what the auction market has reflected and what we've been able to do recently is really thanks to all of the hard work that's been put into that market over the past several years by people like him um and now i like to think that the public price achieved is just one step in helping to continue to grow that market and interest from people around the world in her work. 
Oh, it makes total sense. I think we're somewhat saying the same thing. I, I think these these two things fit together, and sometimes we we don't realize how they fit together. And it, a lot of it is about having sort of social proof and people understanding, you know, where thing where what they're being asked to pay privately fits within a broader. Uh, uh, context, if you have a context of either trust in the gallerist or knowing other people who bought those works or a good advisor who has, you know, a, a solid intel on, on it, those are all ways of, of doing it. But also then these crystallizing moments, I mean, that's what, one of the whole purposes of an auction is price discovery. And that uh, discovery is as much for the people who don't buy to see and understand that someone's willing to pay this price. And, and we get that often. And, you know, we had that recently uh, with another work that was, you know, featured in that collection that set a very big new price for the artist and caused a lot of people to both take notice and and to to worry a bit. And so I'm just trying to tease out that, you know, yes, I understand the worries, but also this is part of the process is the, uh, if you'll forgive the uh, term, the dialectic between the public and private markets. Yeah, I think... I think that a public one of the great benefits of a public price discovery, in my view, um, and you know, I'm well aware that a lot of people people don't like the auctions and what what the values that the prices that we achieve for certain artworks. Um, it expands the realm of the market beyond sometimes what is a very limited and informed group of the conoscenti, right? So, in many of these markets, especially the historical artists. You've got collectors and you've got dealers and advisors who have been tracking these markets for a lot longer um, than the auction houses have been and a lot longer than the wider markets have been. But that becomes very limiting, right? Because you have to be informed and you have to be connected and plugged in in order to be part of that. What something like an auction result, I think, has the capacity to do is suddenly give confidence to a much wider network of collectors, many times internationally um, in emerging markets, to look at an artist's work in a new light and, and have the confidence to be able to pay a new price benchmark for that work. Um, and I really think that that is a super important component of the entire art market ecosystem. No, I think there's a there's a, a confidence level, and and what we often see in in markets is that a new high price isn't followed by similar high prices. That happens on occasion, but usually a new high price is followed by mid-level prices rising because people feel more comfortable. If someone's willing to spend, you know, 2X on this artist, uh, spending 1X no longer seems so um, uh, expensive or risky. So uh, we were talking about figurative artists, and it's not like there ha- haven't been a number uh, of figured ar- uh, figurative artists who did quite well in these sales. I- I'm thinking, you know, of the great Henry Taylor that you set a new record with, with but also, you know, all over town, David Hockney uh, seemed to be having a moment uh, this last season, uh, as well as you you had, you know, Fairfield Porter and um, Wolf Kahn do quite well in your your sales. Yeah, it's about great work, figurative or abstract, right? It's about I would I would say that the biggest takeaway for me of this past season was the 
and it's it's something we've been saying now for for several years, but it really crystallized this time around um, the selectiveness of the market, the incredible amount of discernment that exists um, across across value bands and across categories. I would say that um, buyers know what they're looking for; they can recognize quality, and when that exists, they're willing to spend for that. Um, and you see that in the depth of bidding that we have for such works, whether they be figurative or abstract. Um, and I think that's awesome because that level of 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 carefulness um, and precision um, and differentiation of quality is what makes our market that much stronger and smarter. Talk to me a little bit about how you navigate that a, a picky market because I think that's that's very clear. We're we're in a phase where there's still plenty of people buying art, but it's not you know everywhere all at once. And so when you you know when you deal with a consigner, every consigner thinks their work is the the greatest and <laughs> worth the most most money. But you have to already pre choose based. I'm assuming on you know, what you hear from your, your, your clients, how, how is it you can sort of navigate yourself towards getting just the right works that you think that selective market will select? It's a great question. Um, it, it's something we've been very focused on uh, for the past several years. I think finding the right works and pricing them correctly is key to market success. Um you know, we're not a museum, we're an auction house. So we are at times reactive, of course, and property comes to us. But I think that the one of the ways in which our strategy has changed is we've been a lot more proactive about who are the artists that we want to present at auction, whether they be historical or current, who are what not only who are those artists, but which works specifically are the right ones to bring to auction. Um, where do we find them and how do we go after them? And that's something that we think about all the time, um, because in a market that is so defined by pickiness, as you call it, it's important to bring the best works. And of course, it's more interesting to do that with artists and markets that are fairly underdeveloped or untapped. And we, you know, we work really hard to try to figure out what, where those areas are and how we can find those works. Say a little bit more about why it's harder with underdeveloped or untapped markets. Uh, is that because the sellers are less inclined to uh, consign or because it it requires more education of the buyers and, and to sort of generate the demand and competition? It's a bit of both. I mean, I think you know, in, in markets where the value is untested, it's it's always a little bit of an experiment, right? So you, you have the belief of the specialists who say to collectors that now's the time to really do this, right? But somebody has to have the bravery and the courage to be the first mover. And I always believe that the first mover in any market has an advantage um, because there's an excitement around the narrative of presenting a fresh story to market. But it also, as you point out, requires a degree of education on the buyer front um, and many times it works, but of course it's a risk and risks are always harder to take than, than markets that are much more established and have precedent. 
So is there anything from these sales that you you sort of now think uh, you can sort of hopscotch to either the next artist or the next you know period of uh, of an artist? I mean, is there is there directional information coming out of these sales? Oh, I can't tell you that, Marion. <laughs> Here, let me go at it another way. Wolf Khan and um, David Hockney uh, have an odd similarity in these sort of these uh, electric uh, colored landscapes. Does that, you know, bring to mind a third artist that you think could be fitted into all of the that? I, I, it's been fascinating to me to see how the market for what is traditionally referred to as American art has changed. Um, you know, it started with O'Keefe, but it's become a lot more, um, it's become a lot different and transformed. I would give credit where credit is due and think that one of the most interesting, one of the more interesting works that came to market this season was the Agnes Pelton at Christie's, which they put into the their modern and contemporary evening sale and achieved an extraordinary result. And here's a market that has been, you know, along the themes of much of what we've been discussing, had had been primed for rediscovery, but nobody had really done it by putting it into a 20th century context. And that was a great result. So, you know, I think that that speaks to a redefinition of the of the market for traditionally American painting, which Pelton had been classically considered. Um, and, you know, you saw it in our sale with Fairfield Porter, $2.8 million for that painting, which again, had been traditionally an American artist. What does American mean? It's a bit of a um, of a misnomer in a way because it is the same as modern and contemporary. And we've, we've reshifted our categories in the past year, as you've seen, to incorporate American art into the modern and contemporary sales rather than have traditional American painting sales. And that's changed the market. So you can continue to see us do more of that and test more of those um, old categorical divisions in order to re- reshape and redefine certain key markets. You did that a few seasons ago with uh, Latin American artists, uh, many many of whom are are sort of smack in the middle of uh, you know contemporary art to begin with. Uh, is that because the collecting categories have changed, or more the sort of telescoping? nature of art history where we start to pick out individual art- artists I'm I'm correct me if I'm wrong but I believe there was a time that Francis Bacon was sold as a you know British Irish ar- ar- artist rather than as an international uh, artist mod Brit <laughs> I think this has been happening across the I wouldn't just say the market but across um, the museum world, you know, you can see it in in MoMA's rehang when they opened the new the new galleries a couple of years ago. Now, um, there is a I would say a a um, a fighting against traditional notions of categories, the old fashioned notions of geographical distinctions within our collecting categories has shifted. Um, why would something? Why would an artist like Gego be offered in a Latin American? art sale rather than in a contemporary sale? Why would an artist like Norman Lewis be offered in an American painting sale rather than be offered alongside abstract expressionists in a modern and contemporary sale? I, When you ask those questions, there's, there's no real answer for it. And in our kind of thinking through that and how we then 
reshape our categories, um, we've been able to, I think, create price discoveries that were that are due in part to that rethinking. I I get the sense, but I don't really deal, you know, with the uh, collector base uh, as uh, you know the way you, that you do. But I do get the sense that that one of the big shifts over the last ten or fifteen years has been that uh, uh, collectors are less chauvinistic in the sense of you know you buy Latin American art because you are uh, uh, you know have some connection. You either live in Latin America or you have some uh, personal connection to to it. You you know you buy art in these categories because you're fascinated with the category has turned into people are looking for interesting examples of all sorts of different things across categories, which would make sense. We live in a, a much more global world. Uh, ironically, the the high modernism of the 50s, the world was pretty global then too. <laughs> and there was a moment where a lot of these artists were working in, you know, across multiple continents and and were connected to each other uh, uh, through, you know, fellowships, through, you know, living in the same city and and so forth. So it's almost like we're going back to uh, a perspective that we had now almost, you know, 100 years ago. Completely. I mean, from a from a historical and 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 um, scholastic point of view, there's a much greater degree of appreciation for looking around what is sort of the the norm i would call what has been the norm right like you've you've got the new york school of abstract expressionists which were for so long considered you know the the top top but what else was happening around the world at that time and that's a question that that everybody has been asking over the past several years and it's been bringing a lot of great artists to light both from a museum perspective and also from a market perspective from a market perspective, there's a degree of opportunity there as well, right? Because um, as prices become stratospheric in certain categories, uh, like a de Kooning or a Rothko or or whatever you want to call it, um, people look to what other interesting work was happening around that time that might be more of an opportunity from a market perspective that might be undervalued, right? And that kind of attention helps to shift markets and appreciation and publicity. Yeah. In another context, uh, I was speaking to someone uh, uh, recently, actually, for one of these po- podcasts, where they talked about dropping out of bidding, not because the their client lacked the money, but because they came to the realization there was so much more they could do with that money than chase this one uh, uh, painting. And that you could apply that to a broader sense that what part of what seems to be going on in the world now is the recognition that there's many more wor- artists and works of art that one can uh, uh, bring into a collection that will achieve as much or more as uh, as owning that you know stratospherically p- priced work. Completely, and I think it goes hand in hand with where we started the discussion, which is this kind of flight towards quality, right? So people. I find now don't want to settle for second best and they don't want to pay an A plus price for a B plus work. So if you can't afford the the price that an A plus work is selling for by a particular artist, rather than buying the B plus work, those people are now going to find the artist that they can afford to buy the best of that work. Maybe not the artist, but the medium, right? If you can't, 
I'd rather buy an A plus work on paper by this artist rather than buy a B painting. And you had that with Hockney, right? The, the, there, there were those great paintings from the Allen collection, uh, you know, selling at one level, but you brought a, a, a work on paper that did exceptionally well itself. It, it, it's completely, you know, I would say um, driven by a desire to buy the very best. Uh, and um, that's what's creating new price appreciation and new records for things like the Hockney work on paper, but also the Howardina Pindell painting. You know, it 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 reaches across a variety of different sectors of the market, but I think it is all thematically linked. I think that's the perfect place to end. Next time I will try and wheedle out more names for, from you, but I will uh, take the loss here and uh, accept that uh, the, the picky market and people looking for the best of what, whatever the category or artist is a, is a good place to sort of define what's go, going on. At least it's not a, you know, a, a, a retreat or people are turned off. They're just looking for what they think is something they can be, you know, exceptionally happy with having acquired. Tune in to November 2023 when all will be revealed. <laughs> Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.